Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, the primary elections are barely a month away, which means that it's a good time of year for one of my favorite reporting hobbies, tracking campaign finance. Some really interesting stuff going on in the 2022 races. You have Governor Brad Little out to a huge fundraising advantage over uh, competitors in his primary. You have this neck-and-neck fundraising race in the lieutenant governor's primary between House Speaker Scott Bedke and Representative Priscilla Giddings. And you have a pretty wide gap in fundraising in the state superintendent's primary with uh, Debbie Critchfield holding a pretty large fundraising advantage over her two Republican opponents, incumbent Sherry Ibarra and Republican Brandon Durst. To break all this down and what it means and what else to look for in this election season, I sit down this week with Jacqueline Kettler, an associate professor of political science at Boise State University. Well, Jacqueline, thank you for joining me on the podcast again. It's always good to catch up with you as we head into an election season. It really feels like time to to talk. Okay, we're less than five weeks out from the primary. What is your general sense of where we are right now? And what is the biggest thing or biggest trend that's jumping out at you right now? Yeah, we're definitely starting to see campaigns really get more active, especially now that the legislature has wrapped up, they're done. I think, you know, we're really seeing candidates' attentions really focused on the campaigns now. And so we're starting to see a lot more activity, whether that's forums, um, also more advertising is starting to come out. And so we're starting to see I've seen a lot of yard signs popping up over the last week. So we're really seeing candidates start to really ramp up their campaigning now. Any big surprises for you at this point? Oh, that's a great question. I think one thing that I've been really interested in is in the, in the lieutenant governor's race, mm-hmm. how tight the money is between Bedke and Giddings. They're, they both have fundraised a little over $500,000. Right. Um, and so like that, that's pretty, I mean, at least in terms of that metric, pretty tight at the moment. And, and I wanted to talk about the race. So let's just start there. You would expect going into a race like this, Scott Bedke, he's the Speaker of the House. He's been in office for, I want to say, about 20 years, very well entrenched within Republican circles and very well entrenched within circles of you know, your traditional Republican donors. So it probably wouldn't be a surprise that he's raising this kind of money. But Priscilla Giddings, who's running as more of an outsider, like you say, she is uh, fundraising dollar for dollar at this point. Yeah, and she's she's done it through quite a like a pretty high number of donors. So you know a lot of individual donors, and so perhaps more of a grassroots type of campaign, which makes sense. Someone like Bedke, being a leader and you know Speaker of the House, has the resources to pull on from more you know from political action committees, other sorts of larger donors where a candidate like Giddings would, you know, is clearly trying to run a more grassroots campaign, including doing a lot of media, Mm -hmm. she's traveling a lot. And so there's an interesting comparison there between their campaign styles so far. And it's half a million dollars for each candidate in a part-time job, which I think really underscores that this isn't as much about the policy role that a lieutenant governor can play, because there's really only so much uh, lieutenant governor can do. But this is really a, a political battle. It's really a showdown between the two wings of the Republican Party. 
For sure. Yeah, the lieutenant governor position is kind of interesting, right? I mean, sometimes it's treated as like perhaps a stepping stone for running for governor down the road, Mm -hmm. but it is relatively limited in the authority you have, um, especially if the Senate's not like, you know, if there's a large majority, if the majority has a large majority, you're not really, your role Mm -hmm. there isn't going to be as a key decider compared to like, you know, uh, if it was a tied Senate perhaps. So yeah, I mean, there's some limits in terms of what authority that office has, which ha- does make it such an interesting race and to see kind of it, it representing perhaps two factions within the Republican Party, but also some of the dynamics between Giddings and Bed Key over the last couple legislative sessions. So in the governor's race, not a very close race in terms of fundraising. You know, Brad Little is far out raising Janice McGeehan and the other candidates in this race, which you would Again, as an incumbent, you know, entrenched in traditional Republican circles, you kind of expect that, right? Yeah. And I mean, one other, you know, one thing we started to see Little have more campaign ads airing, really highlighting things like the economy and the success, you know, the success of the Idaho economy over the last few years um, and highlighting as well. But, you know, some of the challenges that people are facing in terms of inflation, cost of living, but really trying to highlight his record of success in Mm -hmm. terms of the economy. And so that may be something that. Um, you know, voters may appeal, that may appeal to voters and really help demonstrate his success in particular on an issue that voters care a lot about. And an extension really of what he seems to be doing on the campaign trail, especially on education. He's gone around the state talking about the the law that's going to provide improved insurance benefits for school employees. Uh, And he was in CUNA just last week touting the literacy bill and the all-day kindergarten funding potential there. So he's trying to run on that record and, and trying to run, you know, more of an issue-oriented you know, recap of his resume. For sure. He's definitely really highlighting what he's been doing in office, his record in office, and trying to highlight the different policy successes that he's had. And so I think that that is really interesting compared to some of the kind of discussions we're seeing in other races that are not so much focused on, you know, kind of, you know, that kind of perspective. And of course, in an open race, like the lieutenant governor's race, it's going to be a different dynamic anyways. But we're really not seeing yet, for example, Bedke running, really highlighting his record Mm -hmm. as Speaker of the House, which is kind of interesting. It feels like, as I see Scott Bedke's commercials, uh, the the one with with the bull, (laughs) you know, the the lowing bull and the the, he what he seems to be doing, and it seems to be uh, not too surprising and not too unique is he's running against the Biden administration. Which definitely makes sense given a midterm election. We often see a lot of focus, um, especially if you're the you're, you're the party, not of the president's party, uh, you know, attacking the presidential administration. And Biden is, has, he's not especially popular, right? He has mm-hmm. low approval ratings. And so it does make sense in many ways that we would see some candidates trying, you know, using their campaign messaging to attack the president, to contrast themselves with the current presidential administration. He's not popular in Idaho and he has issues that are 
really unpopular with Idaho voters, whether you want to talk about inflation or the border policy, um, you know, COVID response. I mean, a lot, a lot of kind of hot button issues in Republican circles. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's that's right. And uh, it's interesting. So we've got a few candidates like Little and Bedke, you know, criticizing the Biden administration in their campaign messaging. And then we have a few candidates who have been really focused on Trump, former President mm-hmm. Trump, yeah. in their in their campaign messaging. So it's kind of we've got two interesting different approaches going on there. Put it into perspective how unusual it is what we're seeing in the fundraising in the state superintendent's race. I mean, we'd be paying attention to this race anyway because we're an education website, but this is really interesting politically. You have Debbie Critchfield as a challenger who is far outraising the incumbent, uh, Sherry Ibarra. I mean, that, that doesn't happen very often. It's pretty unusual. Of course, Ibarra is kind of a an unusual candidate in general mm-hmm. for a statewide candidate. I mean, in previous elections, um, she tends to run a pretty quiet campaign, all things considered. And so this is perhaps, you know, kind of a continuation of the previous approaches she's had. But now that she has a well-funded primary challenger and another very active primary challenger, it will be interesting to see if she continues to have the same same success she's had in previous elections. And it kind of raises a, a bigger question you know, we, we focus on the money, we focus on it as kind of a horse race sometimes, but it isn't an absolute guarantee of success. And there are some candidates, you know, Sherry Ibarra being a good example in 2014 and 2018, she was outraised and, and won anyway. Is there a common thread? I mean, what makes some candidates more successful in spite of a fundraising disadvantage? That's a great question. I mean, having money is definitely helpful, especially being able to have a campaign staff, being able to run campaign advertisements where voters can learn about you. You may try to, you know, persuade voters to support you, but it's definitely not a perfect, having more money does not ensure you will win. And I think there's a few factors that can play a role there. Sometimes outsider candidates have a lot of success in critiquing a current, like an incumbent, for example, or highlighting the need for change. And sometimes those candidates don't need the same amount of money to be successful. Um, and, and sometimes as well, I mean, there's other sorts of campaign approaches or tactics like more grassroots focused elements that can help build support without, you know, spending loads of money on television advertising uh, as, and as some candidates might do. Mm-hmm. We talked a few months ago about elections and the the issues that motivate voters. And we, we talked about the economy as an issue. I don't think we could have foreseen what's happened with the economy with, with inflation just in the past few months. How does an issue like that galvanize and motivate voters and voter turnout? The economy tends to be one of the most important issue to voters and voters. I mean, we really feel it, right? Like we, we are feeling in our daily lives higher costs 
for, you know, for so many different things right now. And that does affect how voters behave and they tend to punish incumbents that are, you know, overseeing whether or not it's they're, they're directly, you know, uh, responsible for the economy. Uh, they, voters tend to blame uh, incumbents for a bad economy, but also reward incumbents for a good economy. And that's where I think for Little, the key is trying to highlight the success or the, you know, the, the positive economic developments in the state of Idaho, while also highlighting the concerns kind of in the national, you know, at the national level um, to help Grow, you know, help ensure he's successful um, um, in his primary election. Because there are some economic issues that are more in control of a governor than others. I mean, job creation, there's definitely a role that a governor and, and a governor's administration plays. But inflation, gas prices, a governor is really <laughs> at the mercy of what's going on externally. Definitely. And that's one of the kind of <laughs> the challenges, right, with voters do care about the economy and they will use that in their evaluation of candidates um, and of, of incumbents in particular. But <laughs> incumbents are not always responsible for what's happening. But job creation is one major thing that voters do kind of pay attention to. And um, and then, of course, taxes can be another element that voters may pay attention to. And there's some way that the state at the state level, governors can kind of highlight what they've been doing in those realms. How do you see education playing out in this primary? I mean, obviously in the state superintendent's race, it's the issue, but in the governor's race, the lieutenant governor's race, how do you see that in the continuum of issues that motivate voters or, or don't motivate voters? It's been really interesting to watch over the last couple of years, education be such a salient issue in the political agenda. I mean, nationally, right? Like education issues have been discussed in many different primary races, general elections. It's just, it's really fascinating to see, um, especially some some topics like um, debates about critical race theory and the teaching of critical race theory align with some of the broader cultural debates or discussions we're having as a country. And so it, it is really fascinating to see some elements of education being really highlighted in different races and different candidates highlighting elements of this. And I think it'll be interesting to once we get past the primary to the general, I think it'll be interesting to see how how are how's education being discussed in the primary versus the general? And do we see any shifts or are they really focused on the same sort of topics? And really stark in the governor's race that you have candidates who are going to talk about education, but they're going to talk about it from very different perspectives, very different emphasis, emphases. You have Governor Little, who's going to talk about what he's been talking about for four years, you know, teacher salaries, uh, you know, he'll, he'll tout the insurance plan, he'll, he'll tout the bonuses for school employees, he'll tout literacy. Lieutenant Governor McGeehan has obviously made, you know, CRT and indoctrination, her centerpiece education issues. So they're talking about education, but from totally different uh, points of view. Right. And that'll be interesting to continue to watch over the next few weeks, how that discussion continues or how that focus kind of, you know, what happens with that issue and how, how do primary voters I mean, it's really fascinating, right? What are going to be the issues that primary voters think about the most when evaluating these candidates? And I mean, we know that in general, like 
Idahoans be, are pretty supportive of more funding for public education, teacher mm-hmm. pay, some of those types of things. But there also seems to be concern about some of these other topics. And so it will be interesting to see how that kind of how those different perspectives kind of play off of each other. Right. Because if you look at the surveys and if you look just at supplemental levy results around the state, you know, voters are largely sympathetic to the idea of putting money into education, especially if they feel like it's going to you know, student outcomes and teacher retention and, you know, but, you know, at, at the same time, yeah, I, I do think that you've got voters, maybe the same voters to some degree who are really worried about what they think is happening in terms of indoctrination and CRT. Right, which I, it also connects interestingly to like the national kind of political agenda, right? Mm-hmm. And some of these issues that we've seen a lot of discussion in other states and national politics. And so I think it's, I'm always fascinated when we see some of these, I mean, it's a it's an issue on the national agenda, but very much a state, <laughs> I mean, it's a state policy area. And so that creates some interesting dynamics in how candidates are think are talking about them in our state elections. So two other wild cards going into this primary, the first one being redistricting. And I'm really going to be interested to see with some of these legislative races, the effects of redistricting, not just the head-to-head races that it's created, but also legislators running in very different districts, very different geography, very different constituents. It definitely will be interesting. I think one thing will be, do we have some districts emerge that are going to be more competitive than what we've seen before? And in in some districts, we have a fair number of, you know, at least for the Republican primary, fair number of candidates running. Um, And then as well, like, yeah, I mean, how does, how do redrawn districts affect the leanings of the districts, how candidates are campaigning in the districts, what sorts of issues are being focused on. It really can create a very different, I mean, it's a different environment. And so it will be throughout this year, fascinating to see the effects of our new districts. And it feels like this would be a great research project for a reporter or a grad student or or professor. What happens with money in these legislative races? Because we're already seeing some of these legislative primaries. I think about the Senate race in District 1 and the Panhandle. And I think about the Senate race in District 15 in West Boise, you know, the Fred Martin, Cody Galloway race. Lots of money in those races. You know, I, I live near District 15, and it seems like you know, when I drive through that district, you, you, know, you can't go a block without seeing either a Martin sign or a Galloway sign. A lot of money in legislative primaries, maybe more than we've seen in the past. And maybe that's uh, a trend. I think that is really interesting and that will be, that would be great to compare across primaries. One thing, I mean, looking at a lot of the, you know, once we started to see candidates file, we have a lot of, we have a lot of races that aren't, that are either aren't contested or aren't really competitive. And so what I'm curious about is whether, are we seeing more money, but really centered in just a few districts Mm -hmm. and a few races. And, um, and I think with a, an election like this, where we have a number of competitive statewide Republican primary races, how does that affect legislative races and their attempts to get attention, to have voters pay attention to them, all those And how much money filters well. down into those races because there's only so much money to go around. Another wild card is turnout and crossover turnout. And I'm really curious to 
get your take about the Democratic crossover potentially in this primary, especially when you've got a gubernatorial candidate who now has to qualify for the ballot as a write-in, and he's really force, forcing Democrats to make a choice. Do they stay home and vote for vote for Shelby Ronstadt, or do they cross over and, and vote in the Republican primary? Something we could not have expected a couple of months ago, a very un, unforeseen circumstance. I'll be really curious to see what it does and how it affects things. Yeah, that is definitely going to be one interesting element to watch. I mean, writing campaigns can be can be tricky, um, you know, and so it, it does take some resources. It takes some effort to make sure that voters follow through, write you in those types of elements. Um, and you so got to teach dynamic. a thousand voters at least to spell Rongstead correctly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, which goes to it takes time, it takes money, it takes resources to make uh, a write-in can- campaign stick. And the challenge, right, is as the candidate, that's probably resources that they weren't expecting to use in that way. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you know, it, it takes time. It takes resources, time away from starting to build what could have, you know, what could be your general election right. campaign now trying to make sure that you actually emerge right. to the general Sit election. on some money, put together your infrastructure for a general election. Obviously, you can't do that now. Yeah, it, that's definitely, I think... That was something, yeah, as you said, none of us could have predicted no. that would be happening. And I am really interested in in how what our statewide voter registration numbers look like now and whether we have seen quite a few new registered Republicans. And that could be coming from the, Demo- you know, previously registered Democratic voters or unaffiliated voters right. deciding to register as Republican. Right. Just newcomers onto the into the primary. You know, who haven't been that, that as well. One way or the other. So you foreshadowed that that's one thing you'll be watching these next five weeks. What else do you watch for as an observer? And what should listeners be looking for? Looking at? I'm always interested in not just like what policy positions are candidates sharing, but what issues are they really highlighting? Are they really focusing on? And that can be really kind of fascinating to think about, you know, that can tell us a few different things, not just their potential position or what their agenda might be. For example, in 2018, Little focused a lot on education, helping mm-hmm. provide some ideas that, oh, maybe this would be this would be an issue really focuses on, in addition to believing that voters, that was an issue voters really right. cared about. Um, so I think that's something that can be insightful. I'm also really interested to see which races attract a lot of out-of-state money. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a few races that might do so, including the attorney general race, yeah. <laughs> which it will be kind of fascinating to watch who gets involved in, in, in funding in that race. No, and it's one we didn't talk about before, but it is a very interesting, intriguing matchup when you've got you know a 20-year incumbent and you know, a, a guy who didn't miss out by that much uh, getting his party's nomination for governor four years ago, you know, former congressman. I mean, this is a high-profile couple of candidates. And they're not the only two candidates in the race, I mean, but but they're the two best known. Now, it, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how that, how that plays out. Yeah. In addition to that, I think there's some interesting questions that might emerge in that race about orientation to what what they would do in office. Right. Mm -hmm. Like how would they would use the office? And that's something we've seen kind of 
some changes across the country in some state attorney general offices being much more, you know, politically activist in some ways rather than a more, you know, like restrained kind of looking, using the Constitution to kind of gain, you know, to uh, you know, evaluating laws and things like that versus being more activist. So I think that, that there's also an interesting, not just potentially ideological differences, but differences in how they would use the office. Right, where you have Raul Labrador and Art McComber both talking about playing a much more of an activist role or, or, or definitely much more of an adversarial role vis-a-vis the administration, whereas Lawrence Wasden has said, look, we've, we've filed lawsuits against the administration, we've had success, but he always talks about his job being that of an umpire. Yeah, and, and, and his campaign ad highlights his, he, he uses the phrasing um, constitutional conservative, right. which I think works in a couple different ways and an interesting kind of insight into what he thinks his, what he thinks of his role as attorney general. Right. Well, five weeks away, we will see what this, uh, what happens here and what, how it unfolds. And I'm sure we'll be talking more probably uh, sometime between now and the general election. I'm always happy to chat. Thanks for coming aboard. Again, that was Jacqueline Kettler, a political science professor at Boise State University. If you're as fascinated with campaign finance as I am, and as Jacqueline is, you'll want to check out a feature that we'll have on our homepage between now and the primary. Blake Jones is breaking down the dollars in that state superintendent's primary. He's got the numbers. He's got a really cool data visualization for you. And he'll be watching those uh, dollars as they flow in between now and the May 17th primary. So check that out at idahoednews.org. And while you're on the website, you can check out a two-story package that I wrote on Thursday, taking a deeper dive into the controversies and the turmoil at North Idaho College in Coeur d'Alene. The news last week that broke after uh, the podcast a a week ago. The State Board of Education will step in now and fill three vacancies on the North Idaho College Board of Trustees. That will happen in early May. I take a look at how we got here and what that means for the college moving forward. So check those stories out at idahoednews.org. Also check out a story from Devin Bodkin looking at how schools are getting ready for the new academic standards that were approved by the 2022 legislature. So a lot of stuff at idahoednews.org. Continue to follow us uh, every day for the latest in education policy and education politics. That'll wrap it up for the podcast this week. I hope you have a good weekend. Those of you who celebrate Easter, I hope you have a, a blessed holiday. My weekend includes uh, the annual race to Roby Creek. The uh, challenging half marathon will be a little bit more challenging this year. As I sit here Friday morning, the forecast uh, for the weather looks uh, pretty interesting. So uh, I'm expecting some rain and I'm expecting some pain. But I'm also expecting to be back next week for another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.